Hey, hey, Disability Law Show, we are back at it. Good to have you along for the hour. Please stick around and contribute anytime. John Scholes here and joining me. Double trouble. We got James Fireman, Tamara Gopian, Sam Fury, Tamark, and LLP. You can always reach out to both and their teams. And uh, got you fully covered with any questions uh, during or after the show. You can phone one 821 5900 email help at disabilityrights.ca and the website built just for you recently you can check it out we'll answer a lot of your questions and that would be uh, pocketdisabilitylawyer.ca as well but a ton of stuff to uh, to get through on the show today guys and uh, I'm going to throw it over to you I guess tomorrow this time around for the uh, the week that was or something that's going on on your end before we bust into a lot of email what's going on guys Busting into email. I love it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's uh, been a busy week. You know, this is the thing. This is the time of year where a lot of our uh, matters get to the point where we're trying to resolve them because it's sort of the back end of the year. And, you know, adjusters just want to see their files closed. So lots of mediations, lots of settlement conversations. And I wanted to highlight uh, one of the matters I was working on this week that had an interesting fact pattern and is headed to uh, mediation shortly. And it involves involves a client of ours. He's out in Alberta. He worked for one of the large municipalities there in waste removal for a number of years. He had actually had a back injury many years before he started that particular job. Uh, and, you know, good on him. He had surgery. He managed to work his way back, uh, but obviously was working a fairly physical job. And I think that took a toll over the years that he did that job. And eventually it got to a point where he was starting to develop other pain conditions in other parts of his body so you know not just the back it went into the neck and to the upper extremities um, right leg issues and he and his doctor just said look maybe we give you a break let's see how you're doing and he put him off work he puts him off work and then he develops even more health issues Um, other things are discovered both from a physical perspective and a mental health perspective not surprising he was diagnosed with chronic pain and he's been struggling with that for a long long time it, to his credit, he's been doing a lot of different treatment measures. Um, you know, he doesn't love needles, but he's subjected himself to all the different things that you can do, injections and acupuncture and physiotherapy, uh, all of the different medication, all the different things that he would normally be prescribed. And he's just plateaued. He's at a point mm-hmm. now where his doctors are saying, look, his condition is permanent. He does what he can, you know, for his daily activities. But at the end of the day, we don't see him, you know, working his way back to any sort of job. So he makes a disability claim. He is approved for short-term disability and then transitions to long-term disability. So he made that first hurdle. And then as you know, insurers do, you get close to that two-year mark. And in his policy, there is a change of definition. So the definition to qualify past that two-year mark for him, as it is for most of these group disability policies that we talk about, is that, you know, can you do any job, anything for which you've got, you know, the minimum education, training, and experience, and that would put you into a job that pays you roughly two-thirds of what you were making. And in this policy, it actually defines the threshold earnings um, a little bit lower than that. It was at 50%. So they do the analysis, the insurance company that is, and they don't really tell them they're doing this analysis. In the midst of that, they actually send them a letter and saying, you know, we think you should be applying for CPP disability. Another topic we talk about a bit on our show, and this is a government-supported, sponsored disability plan for people who have severe 
and prolonged disabilities. So you might be scratching your head at this point. I know I certainly was when I was looking Same. at the claims file thinking, well, hang on. They're doing their review to see whether or not he's going to qualify at the any occupation phase. And at the same time, they're sending them this letter saying, look, we, we think you may not qualify, so you should actually go ahead and apply for CPP disability. Uh, and what makes it even more frustrating is they say to him, you must apply. Our policy says you have to apply, which it doesn't say that, but my guy doesn't know any better, so he goes ahead and he applies for CPP disability. Right at the time where he was going to be approved or denied, he actually gets approved for CPP disability. And if you look at the claims file, it suggests that they were actually going to deny him. And then, of course, he gets the CPP approval, and they do a complete 180. And they say, oh, okay, great. We're going to approve you now past that change of definition. Why? Because the insurance companies do a whole bunch of money from that CPP disability amount. The policies will say that they get a credit for whatever you receive from the government for CPP disability. They draft the policies, so they set it up this way, and of course, if they can get money back, they will do that. And you know, it, my whole argument is that the only reason why they continue to approve and pass that change of definition was in order to get this CPP credit, which they do in several thousands of dollars. And then they renew their uh, review of whether or not he's totally disabled from any occupation. And surprise, surprise, they deny him three months later. So very interesting case uh, because his doctors are very clear he can't work. The insurance company's doctors actually supported that he cannot work. And yet we see that the insurance company has gone one way and then another way. Um, and in my view, frankly, just to get that credit back for the monies that they had put out for that CPP disability benefit. The other interesting aspect of this is that the onus now shifts to the insurance company. So the legal onus is actually on them to demonstrate that there is something else that my client can do. And when you see all of the medical information, there's just no way in my mind that a court would accept what the insurance company has done, nor their position that in fact he can do some other jobs, which are mostly just sitting down in front of a computer. He's got too many um, physical issues and mental health issues to allow him to do any of those jobs. But nevertheless, here we are. And so I thought it was an interesting one because it highlights these different features of things that you know, people often wonder, well, why is my insurance company communicating this? Why are they saying that? You know, is this something that's typical? And then how does this play itself out? And, you know, in my view, I think we've got a really strong case. I expect that it's going to resolve at the mediation. Uh, I expect it's going to be a great outcome. Uh, but at the end of the day, it requires individuals to know what their rights are, which is why we do the shows that we do every week. So uh, with that, I'm curious if uh, James wants to weigh in on uh on this week that was. Of course, I, I would love to, and thanks for the very kind invitation tomorrow. So <laughs> when I when I look at something like this, I actually try and look at it a little bit more pragmatically. I mean, yes, you're, the insurance company is doing what it can to not pay benefits. This is your classic dog bites man. This is not surprising to anybody. What I really see here, though, is the practical situation for this particular person. He's uh, in waste removal, which suggests to me in most cases, um, you know, it's a physical job and it's one where, not to be too presumptuous, but most people in that line of work typically don't have the education, training or experience 
to earn a significant amount in a sedentary job. There are exceptions, of course, but if this person is not an exception, then it's going to be very difficult for the insurance company to be able to point to some other occupation that he's even going to be qualified for that would pay the 50 or 60% uh, commensurate income required under the policy. But the bigger issue is whether or not he could even do a sedentary occupation with the type of pain that he has. I would be very surprised if there wasn't pretty good medical support for functional limitations that suggest he can't sit for more than half hour, 45 minutes, maybe even an hour. Can't stand for more than half an hour, maybe an hour. And when you see those types of limitations, it follows in virtually every case that this isn't someone who's going to be able to continually switch between standing and sitting in perpetuity throughout the day, day after day, week after week. Maybe they could switch once or twice in any given day, but usually for people in that situation, or at least this is my experience for clients in similar situations, they invariably tell me that, yeah, I could probably do it maybe two or three times in any one given day, but then the next three or four days I'm going to be paying for it. So it's not a sustainable situation where people that are suffering from this type of overall body pain, these types of functional limitations, that they're really going to be able to do any work. I mean, certainly not physical, but even a sedentary job is going to be incredibly difficult for somebody who is suffering with that many issues. So that's really the way that I approach it. I, I, I mean, that the insurance company is doing what they can to undermine the claim or has ulterior motives. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> that's every case. <laughs> that's the way it always goes. But I just you know look at this from a much more practical perspective and just say, there really is no argument that they have, let alone the fact that CPP disability, which you correctly point out is a much more onerous test, has said that he is disabled. He's got a prolonged and severe impairment. And that's the federal government confirming it. So I don't see how the insurer has any reasonable basis to sit there and say that, oh yeah, he can go back and do some other occupation and that this is just going to be something he's going to be able to do on an ongoing basis. I haven't even looked at the file, but I can tell without looking at it that this is a ludicrous point of view. And it's, it, the other point is this, when you look, when you're in that position, when you're this particular gentleman who is being treated this way by the insurer, it seems kind of hopeless and it seems as though, how am I ever supposed to take on this insurance company? But the reality is the insurance company's position is very weak. And as soon as you make them come to the table, and the way you do that is by bringing a lawsuit, by forcing them to deal with the situation, knowing that if they don't, they wind up in front of a judge, which is the last thing they want. So as soon as you bring a lawsuit, they're going to come to the table and they're going to recognize that they have significant exposure because the medical evidence is just not going to allow them to maintain that kind of denial. And with that, guys, we got lots more to get through. Good opening, uh, good opening segment for sure. I'll give you some details how to get a hold of James and tomorrow as we roll forward. Maybe your email will appear, maybe not on this show, but a future show. 
For sure, that uh, that address, help at disabilityrights.ca, phone number anytime off air. Probably want to have a lengthier conversation, 1-855-821-5900. Short break, back into it with emails right here on the Disability Law Show. Hang tight. All right, welcome back to the Disability Law Show. Good to have you hanging with us. John Scholes and James Fireman, Tamara Gopian from Sam Firu, Tamara and LLP, always at your service. When we're not doing this uh, fine hour of radio, how do you reach out? 1-855-821-5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Okay, guys, Cece, first email. It says, hi, guys. I was told I'm transitioning from STD benefits paid fully by my employer for 15 weeks to LTD. I was given forms to complete for LTD. I'm hoping to try to return to work on a gradual modified basis, but honestly don't know if I can do the job quite yet. It's uh, been a long healing process, very unexpected. I had an injury in February and fractured my thoracic spine. Fast forward, then I had surgery, which was not a success, and I'm still dealing with upper back pain and also diaphragmatic rib pain daily. My daily and weekly routine include physio, massage, swimming, TENS machine, and meds to strengthen my back. My question is, if I attempt to return to work, do those hours get paid in full by my employer and then LTD pay 60% of the hours I don't work? I was told my company is no longer involved and I'm on LTD and I would only get paid 60% of hours worked. I'm 60 and uh, I have seniority. I do bookkeeping and as soon as I work on my computer at home, my back stings sharply. I'm hoping my company would approve and accommodate me working remotely so that I could try to work a four-hour day, only an eight-hour day when I can, with rest in between to see if that's doable. Just wondering what my options are so uh, that I'm not re-injuring my back in uh, accommodating going back to uh, back to work. Thank you for your help. What do you guys think? Great. Very, yeah, inter- ahead, very James. interesting. Thank you. So it's certainly an interesting situation. What you're going to find is most disability policies are going to have provisions in there that encourage you to try and return to work and at least provide a framework so that if you attempt and you're not successful, that you'll be able to return to receiving disability benefits. Whether they're actually adhered to in practice is a whole other question, and we can get to that in a moment. But looking at the situation prospectively, looking at what is going to happen for CC in this situation, each policy might be somewhat different when we're dealing with how payment is addressed if you are attempting a return to work. So for most issues that we're talking about on this show, We're talking about a theoretical LTD policy that is consistent across the board. And the reality is, for the core provisions, when you're dealing with whether or not you're disabled, that is largely true. There just isn't a lot of variance policy to policy. But there are other issues where there is a fair amount of variance when you look at one policy versus another versus another. And in terms of how payments are addressed, when you are attempting to return to work, that is definitely an area where you want to look at how your policy is specifically worded. So there are definitely provisions in a lot of policies that will deal with approved rehabilitation. And so that's typically what would happen in this kind of scenario when you are on disability benefits, when you're receiving benefits, and you're attempting to return to work but not on a full-time basis. And there are different formulations for how it's paid. 
it may be that as you were advised by someone that you only get the 60%, but usually there are formulations that actually would encourage you to work beyond um, you know, just an initial level so that you can increase your earnings above that 60%, and then it would be above a certain point, typically it's something like 85%, then you wouldn't be able to get any more and it would cap out. Sometimes it might even go all the way up to 100%. So you really want to take a look at the language of the policy. And that's something that we're always uh, available to help with. So if you're in this situation and you're looking at trying to return to work and you're not sure how to read your policy, we're happy to consult with you on that. We don't charge for those consultations. It's something that we can look at and hopefully provide you with a fairly quick and straightforward answer. But in this scenario, the other thing I would say is, you know, if you are in a position where you are feeling confident about trying to go back to work and your doctors have told you that it's okay to give it, give it an attempt and here is uh, the limitations or the schedule that you have to adhere to, you want to bring your insurance company in and you want to make sure that you have a clear understanding of what you can do from their perspective. Uh, to make sure that you're not doing anything outside of the policy and that you're not going to be surprised with the result. Tamar? Well, I, I was really intrigued by this idea of Cece asking us what her options are because, you know, there, you're right, James, that there needs to be some component of the insurance company being involved, but the employer is involved in this circumstance as well. And so if CC is being approved and she's being paid for disability benefits, typically most disability insurers will coordinate this return to work process with CC and the employer. They may even actually direct it to say, this is the, the, you know, the return to work plan. This is what we've put in place, employer. You know, here you go. She'll be starting on this day on this schedule. But what if the insurer is not involved? What if they've just simply said, we're cutting off your benefits and, you know, you return to work. Maybe you should, maybe you shouldn't. We don't care. We think you're not totally disabled. Well, then the options really are a little less in the sense that Cece has to then initiate this process herself with her employer. And so you do need very clear medical information from your own doctor, Cece, as to what those restrictions and limitations are, what is that return to work plan that your doctor is actually recommending and suggesting, and you have to broach that directly with your employer. And if it's not sustainable, well then, yeah, the insurance company should be stepping up and paying further disability benefits. And so it can be a little bit tricky to navigate, but the starting point is always what is your own doctor recommending and suggesting as to the frequency of hours, the number of days, the duties that you do, you know, she raises with us working from home versus going in office. All of those things can be set out in medical information and reports and forms that you can then submit both to the insurer and the disability and the employer rather. Because, you know, what ends up happening sometimes is that people have the best of intentions, the doctors have the best of intentions, you know, individuals get back to work and they may find themselves that it's not sustainable and they need to go off again. And these disability policies provide for those kinds of scenarios. There are recurrence provisions in these policies that say that if your health issues, you know, reemerge and prevent you from working once more, typically within you know a six month window then your ltd benefits should theoretically kick back up again and they should be paid 
without any sort of waiting period or hold period. Uh, and insurers t- don't really like those kinds of recurrence claims because once they have you off and they don't have to pay you, they don't want you back on. So again, I think I would encourage Cece to sort of take this step by step, make sure that there's a lot of clarity around what she's capable of doing. And if she's getting any sort of resistance from the disability insurer or the employer for this process, then there are legal ramifications. There are avenues that she can pursue None are easy, but that's what we're here to do is to help and provide guidance uh, as people go through this. What kind of uh, guys, if, if there is any, what kind of stall tactics are they going to use based on her age, the fact that she's 60? I'm assuming her policy is done at 65. Yeah. It's, uh, it's it's tricky, right, John, because you're yeah. right. These Most of these group disability policies will pay only until someone is 65 years old. And so the fact that she's 60 and she has seniority um, could be this sort of perfect storm where you've got the disability insurer who doesn't want her on for the next five years and the employer that maybe is going to resist her return to work. And if they do, <laughs> I mean, look, this is why we have a dedicated employment um, practice and, and mm-hmm. employment law shows and so on because you know if you're trying to come back from a medical leave and your employer isn't accommodating your return well that's a problem for the employer and it could then give rise to a claim for cc to seek compensation severance and so on against the employer and when you've got a lot of seniority john i mean that can be a very significant package so this is what i'm saying i think we're really well suited to try and deal with these kinds of situations both from the disability side and the employment side should these issues arise and and not go in the right direction but yes we do often see these kinds of resistance unfortunately for those who are 60 plus uh, because of that exact reason that insurers will look at this and say, well, she's got these physical issues, you know, do we see this getting better with time? She's already had a fairly long healing process. She's doing a lot of therapy. Good for her. Uh, but, you know, these kinds of issues, they don't get better as you age. And so they're, this is why I think insurers are more vigorous at times with individuals who are in their 60s because they don't want them on until they're 65. Again, CC, you know the email address. I tell you, reached us, but the phone number one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred to carry on that conversation with James or Tamar. Uh, another outlet for you guys is mydisabilityquestions.com. From it, guys, I think we got time for this one. It says, do I automatically lose my other benefits from my employer at the two year mark, such as my drug benefits, which they cover through another insurer? I currently get six hundred and fifty dollars for prescription uh, coverage every month. What do you think, James? Well, the the short and easy answer is no. Um, it's, there's no automatic trigger uh, that would exist in most cases that is going to end any uh, other benefits. But the reason two years, I, I believe, the reason why the person is asking about this two-year mark is what Tamara had alluded to earlier in the show, which is what we call the change of definition. So for long-term disability benefits, after you start receiving that benefit, two years from the start that from the start of when benefits were paid the definition that's applied to determine whether you're entitled to benefits changes for the first two years the definition is whether or not you're disabled from your own occupation beyond two years it's whether you're disabled from any occupation you're qualified for by training education or experience and that's why the two-year mark is called the change of definition and so this is an issue that some people confuse as between different benefits because sometimes there is one insurer that is providing all of the benefits to any, any particular disabled person. And so the question is, if you're at that two-year mark, are you going to lose all of your benefits, presumably if you don't meet the test beyond the two-year mark? 
And the answer is just simply no. The change of definition is applicable only to the long-term disability. So you may or may not continue to receive your benefits beyond, or at least your LTD benefits beyond the two-year mark. But that really has no bearing on what happens with your prescription coverage, extended health coverage, paramedical coverage, what have you, dental coverage. That is a completely separate issue, and typically that is dealt with as between you and your employer. Now, different employers are going to have their own policies in how they deal with the other benefits when someone goes on disability. There are some employers that have very rigid rules around this. And once you get to a certain duration of time on disability, then they will end the benefits or perhaps they'll uh, stop paying for them, but give you the option of continuing them on your own. And then there are other employers who, when you're on disability, kind of forget that you're there and will just continue paying your benefits in perpetuity as long as you continue to receive long-term disability benefits. And some even after you've been cut off of long-term disability benefits. So the two-year mark is certainly very relevant when we're talking about the LTD benefit, but it shouldn't have any bearing on what happens with the extended health. Anything I'm missing there, Tamar? You know, not at all, James. And I think what I would add, though, is, and again, I'm going to put my employment law hat on for a second, is that if the employer does then take those steps to cut off those benefits, you want to understand why. Are they relying on a policy? Are they relying on something that the disability insurer has communicated to them? Because they can't just take things away necessarily just because it's been, you know, well, it's too long. You haven't been back at work. We're going to take these extended health benefits away because that gives rise to potential an employment issue uh, so you know this is this is the challenge right as people are trying to go through this and I do appreciate the questions um, you know the frustration around well hang on but it's the same insurance company you're right it is the same insurance company but it doesn't mean that they're necessarily the left hand is talking to the right hand about what's happening so just because you may be approved or denied long-term disability benefits doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to continue to receive or not receive your extended health plan because that extended health plan is very much tied to what your employer chooses to do with your status and all of the benefits that come with your status as an employee. Because that is one of the considerations as well as to what you do about returning back to work or not returning back to work is what happens with that extended health plan. So if people are listening and they're like, wait a minute, I was on disability and my extended health plan ended. Well, you know what? Uh, that could be a problem for your employer and you may want to just give us a call and we'll set you up with one of our employment lawyers if we need to for a quick consult. And with that, guys, we'll take a short break. Get back into more of your emails. Harpreet, I see you standing there, standing by with your email. You are up next. So stand by for that. one 821 5900 to reach out and help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll continue more of the Disability Law Show just ahead. And we are back, Disability Law Show. Good to have you along for the hour. Thank you so much for tuning in and contributing as well. If you sent along an email or something through mydisabilityquestions.com, both of those are available to you. Of course, mydisabilityquestions.com is completely uh, free and anonymous and the email help at disabilityrights.ca for that as promised Harpreet you're up next as guys hello I'm uh, contacting you as I have no idea what I can do as I feel trapped I went on disability short term in October last year I went to an IME at the end of January I was told to contact my doctor for a trauma treatment plan 
I then went to my doctor and he told me to go to a specific mental health treatment facility nearby that deals with mental health and addictions and to ask them to refer me to a trauma specialist. My psychologist there then told me that since there was an IME done, my insurance company is obligated to put me in some form of treatment plan. I contacted the insurance company and they said they are not obligated to put me in any form of treatment plan. They will possibly pay for some treatment. I've been going in circles. As you can tell, I feel like they really don't want to help me. I'm trying my best to get back to work, but it seems I just can't get there. Please, if you could help me, give me some answers. That would be amazing. Wow. What do you think, James? Maybe I'll just jump in. So here's the challenge with this, John, is that the disability insurer will send someone to an independent medical assessment. That's an IME. Mm-hmm. And that examination is done for the insurer to ask a specific doctor, specialist, uh, usually, very detailed questions around, uh, you know, wh- what can Harpreet do? What are, you know, the restrictions, limitations? Is there a capacity to work? And are there treatment recommendations that you want to make or should be making that we need to then implement for Harpreet to assist him in getting back to work? And the insurance company will pay for this kind of assessment. Uh, they will not look at what your doctor has necessarily said in that circumstance, and they will look at their own expert, their hired gun. But they are not obligated under their policy to actually follow through on that treatment recommendation. In other words, what they say to Harpreet sadly is true, which is we can send you to an IME, treatment recommendations can be made, whether they align with your own doctor or not, we don't much care. But at the end of the day, we're not necessarily going to pay for all of that treatment because that's where we go back to what we were talking about prior to our last break around extended health coverage versus disability coverage. Disability benefits, the policies will say, they have a section in it that says, if we think you need treatment, we can actually put you through a rehab plan. But they know that those plans are very expensive. And so they would prefer to say, well, look, if you can access your own treatment, go right ahead. And, and they will, they will be very careful around how much time and energy and money, frankly, they're putting towards actually rehabilitating Harpreet. And this is the trouble that I see because, John, people are having a hard time accessing treatment. And so you would think that the insurance company in a situation like that would be more incentivized to actually arrange for this rehab and make sure that he's getting what he needs. And the runaround then makes it even more frustrating because it's clear to me that he's trying to do everything that he can. And so what do we do? Because the other side of the coin here is that I would actually prefer to see Harpreet see someone that his own doctor has referred him to. I actually don't want him necessarily to be in the clutches of the insurance company's rehab facility or wherever it is that they've identified to do the rehabilitation. So I think the better approach is actually to ensure that those referrals are being made correctly as a starting point from the family doctor. He says to us trauma specialists, I know they're hard to get, but that is definitely the way to go if that's being recommended, especially if the IME doctor has also concurred that that is what needs to happen from a treatment perspective. Because what the insurer will then say is, well, you've got extended health coverage. Have you maximized the benefits under that coverage? Everyone has limits, right, in terms of what it is that they get coverage for. And those benefits need to be used up before the insurance company even decides to step in potentially and offer up more compensation. It's not ideal in any sense of the word. And I think that what's more frustrating is that Harpreet isn't getting the treatment that he needs. And that is really the problem 
problem at the core of this and one that doesn't necessarily, you know, result in the insurance company or the doctor doing the things that, you know, they should or should not be doing. And so I think in a situation like this, what I would like to see is, is Harpreet taking a very careful review of that treatment plan, making sure that he's doing what he can in the interim to access whatever else he can do, whether it be medication, perhaps there's a therapist or a counselor that he can see, and continuing, obviously, to see the family doctor until he gets to a point where that referral is made and he's actually getting the actual trauma-specific therapy that he requires. James, what do you think? Well, I, I look at this from three different perspectives. The first is Harpreet's entitlement to disability benefits. And I think that's actually very strong. The insurer has sent him for an IME that has resulted in recommendations that require treatment plans. So presumably the doctor that the insurance company sent Harpreet to be assessed by has concluded that there is a disability that requires treatment there. And if he's not able to access that treatment, that's not his fault. If he can't afford the treatment, that's not his fault. So at least insofar as his entitlement to benefits goes, he's in a good spot. In terms of access to the actual treatment, that's a much larger problem that perhaps doesn't have a good solution. That's simply something that pretty much everyone in this country, especially when we're talking about mental health treatment, that's something that everybody is facing and that's just a reality. There just isn't enough of that, especially in the last few years with the pandemic. We know that there has been a wave of mental health claims. There's been a wave of mental health disability, and there simply is not enough treatment providers to give the treatment required for everybody that needs it. So is there an easy solution? No, there's not. But Harpreet should continue to do whatever he can in order to access that. The third thing that I think is worth pointing out here is that you shouldn't be taking medical advice from people who aren't doctors, nor should you be taking legal advice from people who aren't lawyers. And in this particular case, unfortunately, Harpreet's psychologist has told him that the insurer is required to pay for the treatment, which, as Tamar correctly pointed out, is simply not the case. It's not their obligation. Sometimes they will, sometimes they won't. It just depends on what suits their needs. Uh, and so you want to make sure that you're getting advice from people who actually understand the legal scenario, which is, of course, a lawyer. Having said that, what I would add is that for any medical care provider that wants more information, please, by all means, give us a call. We talk to medical care providers all the time, completely free of charge. You don't have to provide us with any personal details about any of your clients. We're happy to help you work through any particular situation. And we also have an FAQ on our website that will help you to understand the process in more detail because the disability process is just not something that is typically talked about in great de detail when people go through their medical training. All right, guys, let's take a short break. we got a little bit more to go here, which means more from MyDisabilityQuestions.com and some emails to reach out by phone, too. It's 1-855-821-5900, help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll continue with the Disability Law Show. Hang in there. All right, we're back. Disability Law Show. A few minutes to go here. We love your contributions. Keep them coming. They may appear on a future show, help at disabilityrights.ca through email and the resource of MyDisabilityQuestions.com. You can type your questions there. It's free. It's anonymous. It's also got a searchable database, too. And beyond that, phone call for James or Tamar anytime, one 
821-5900. Okay, uh, as I just mentioned, uh, tomorrow from MyDisabilityQuestions.com. Guy's been off work since April 2023 with pain in my right arm, neck, and shoulder. Due to my job, I do 100% mousing and keyboarding in my job. My work says that my injury is not work-related. I have pain shooting down my arm and experiencing numbness and tingling in my hand. I'm doing all suggested treatments recommended by the doctor and have spent hundreds of dollars towards those. I have mild to severe carpal tunnel as well. Currently, I'm on short-term disability but will run out and will be entering LTD. I've submitted all the paperwork and waiting to hear back from the insurance company. Do I have a good case for some reason uh, I am denied? What do you think? Yes, I think think there could be. I mean, obviously, I'd want to see a little bit more in terms of the medical information, but clearly the job requires frequent use of the computer and the mouse, and the symptoms of disability are the carpal tunnel affecting that area of the body. So it's kind of pretty automatic, John. I mean, this is the thing, is that the test to qualify for uh, disability benefits out of the gates anyway in most disability policies is are you totally disabled from doing your own occupation doing the essential duties of your own occupation or does your health prevent you from doing those duties and that connection is very clear to me when you've got a situation where someone is doing a job repetitively that is causing the health issue and so it's actually curious to me that the company is saying that this is not work related look that idea is an idea of causation okay it's a legal term forgive me but it's a legal term and it's one that says you know are you is this issue the one that is causing the problem okay and in disability it doesn't matter that issue of causation doesn't matter in terms of that connection all you need to establish is that your health is preventing preventing you from working which is why we tell the vast majority of people that we speak with that the starting point is your own doctor your own treatment providers need to support that and as you can see from this question forms need to be submitted and that starts that process for both short-term and long-term disability. It doesn't really matter what the cause is as it relates to the entitlement for disability benefits. Where it becomes a little bit more interesting though is whether or not the injury or the illness that's causing the disability claim stems from something that's happening at work, like a work injury. If that's the case, then some employees have access in addition to disability benefits to workers' compensation type benefits. In Ontario, that's WSIB. In other provinces, it's called WorkSafe. Either way, if your health issue preventing you from working is caused by something that's happening at work, then that is another avenue to consider getting benefits from. And that avenue is actually totally separate from what we typically talk about. Workers' compensation has its own, it's self-governing, it has its own tribunal, it has its own forms, and it is something that needs to be uh, pursued separately from long-term disability or short-term disability. The way that the two get connected, at least from a disability perspective, is the policy. So these are all contractual issues, right? And so there's a contract. It exists between the long-term disability insurer and the employer, typically. And in that contract will be lots of terms and conditions. And one of those sections will say, we will pay you X, but if you have access or are eligible to other sources of income or benefits, we as disability insurer get a credit for that. So we talked about that earlier in the show as it related to CPP disability benefits. Well, workers' compensation benefits are in typically that category as well in these policies that say, well, if you're entitled to get workers' compensation, 
we as disability insurer get a credit for that. So if you're in a situation where, regardless of what your employer might be saying, if your doctor thinks your health issue has been caused by the work setting, then I don't see why a workers' compensation claim should not be made in addition to the long-term disability claim. Either way, in my mind, the, the individual who's written out to us uh, to, at mydisabilityquestions.com seems to me has a very strong case for at least disability benefits and perhaps in addition to that workers' compensation benefits. What do you think, James? Well, I think first of all, just looking at carpal tunnel, I think we typically look at it as a repetitive use injury, but that's not always the case. It can be caused by trauma. By trauma, so in theory, this might not be work related, and that's for someone who has much more medical expertise than I do to determine at the end of the day. But I agree with you wholly about making sure that you also apply for WSIB. First of all, the WSIB benefit is typically going to be more than the LTD, and so you're better off if you're actually able to be approved for the WSIB. And then you may be wondering, well, if the WSIB benefit is worth more, and it's an offset against LTD, wouldn't that mean that you would get zero LTD benefits? So why not just apply for WSIB first, and if you don't get approved, then apply for LTD? Here's why. If you apply for LTD first, they have to just consider it on its own in any case. It's irrelevant whether or not you may or may not have access to WSIB in terms of determining whether or not you are disabled under the policy. How your benefit is calculated is a different question, but whether or not you are disabled under the policy is a question that stands on its own, and you want that to be determined as soon as it's possible. And in this case, it seems quite clear that, as Tamar mentioned before, you would be disabled under the policy. And even if you were approved for WSIB, and that resulted in a net zero payment on LTD, you would still want to be disabled under the policy. You would still want your LTD insurer to confirm that you are disabled as far as the policy goes because what you don't know is how long WSIB is gonna continue making those benefit payments. And if they were to stop at some point before your entitlement to LTD ended, then you would be able to go to the LTD and resume receiving the benefits after your WSIB was cut off. So it is much better to have that approval for LTD even if you're getting a zero net benefit each month because it's basically a fallback. It's a safety net and so it's definitely worthwhile applying to both even if your work says it's not a work injury it's not up to them to make that decision and with that guys we're just about ready to wrap it up for another hour thank you if you've uh, sent some information or some questions along anyway through email continue to do so because we do this every week so the shows continue as does uh, your input that is help at disabilityrights.ca we also several times went over to mydisabilityquestions.com that website's free and anonymous don't even need your name just put your question in there Maybe it's been asked before. That's why it's got a searchable database, which is kind of a cool feature. Again, use that anytime, mydisabilityquestions.com. And finally, the phone number, reachable Tamar and James, both at one 855 and we'll catch you next time right here on the Disability Law Show.